Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. It's a well-known fact that humans can't survive without food. So what happens when the food you eat can sicken or even kill you? I'm talking, of course, about food allergy. And here with me today to help guide us through this topic is Dr. Samara Jamie. And Dr. Jamie is an allergist with the Allergy and Immunology Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare London. She's also Assistant Professor and the Program Director for Clinical Immunology and Allergy at Western University. Dr. Jamie, thanks for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. So the stat I have in front of me is that more than 2.6 million Canadians, including nearly 500,000 children, are living with food allergies. My math calculates that it's about six and a half, seven percent of people. So where a lot of us are familiar with allergies, but perhaps not the details behind them, let's just start with the basics. What causes a food allergy? What causes a food allergy? So in terms of um, the basic definition of what an allergy is, it's an inappropriate response to something that your immune system should not wake up and respond to. So in Mm. the environment, you know, we shouldn't really be reacting to things like tree pollens or cat dander, but our immune system decides that these are not great for us. So the, the immune system reacts. As a result of the reaction, our nose runs, our nose gets congested, our eyes itch and water. So with foods, it's a similar phenomenon where the immune system unfortunately mounts an inappropriate response to something that it shouldn't. And how that comes about, that's sort of a matter of debate. There's a lot of hypotheses. Mm. The most sort of well-established hypothesis, I should say, is called the dual allergen hypothesis, where if your immune system sees food particles through skin that's broken down. So for example, I'll use babies with eczema, for example. Their skin is a little bit broken down. The skin is inflamed. Mm. If the immune system sees food particles through the broken down skin, it mounts a defense response to those food particles, as opposed to if it sees the food particles via the gut, which actually is a way to establish tolerance to the food. So if you, you know, have heard about how we have changed our paradigm of allergen introduction to babies, we now aggressively introduce foods early. That's the reason why, because we want their gut to see the food before their skin does. So that's one hypothesis. Another very well-established one is the hygiene hypothesis, which many are familiar with, which is that, you know, in sort of industrialized nations in particular, we're not exposed to normal everyday microbes as much as we should be. So our immune systems sort of then skew towards responses to things that are innocent in our environment because it just hasn't had a chance to develop in the way that it should. 
clear as mud? No, that's I, I didn't realize that the skin had that much to do with it. The skin has, yeah, the skin is very important. You know, there's trillions of organisms living on your skin, and it's um, actually fascinating how those organisms in the skin and in the gut really, really shape our immune system. So we also know that, I guess, there are certain foods that are more prone to cause allergic reactions in people than others. And I've got a, a, sh a list here. I'll just run through them. You can shellfish, eggs, fish, milk, mustard, peanuts, sesame, sesame seeds, I guess, soya, soy, tree nuts, and wheat, and triticale. Triticale? Triticale. Those are, does that, does that make sense? Those are some of the 90%, it says, of allergic reactions are linked to one of those foods. Are there some others that we need to mention? or? So in, in my head, I sort of go in order of prevalence. So, you know, okay. I would go peanut, milk, right. tree nuts, sesame, soy, shellfish, mm. fish. And then there are some, there's a new one. Mustard is uh, sort of more recently added. And wheat is another one that's that used to be uncommon, but increasingly common. And then there's mm. actually... A lot of ethnic differences. So interestingly, native-born Israelis, for example, do not have any peanut allergy. But, you know, Jewish populations in North American mm -hmm. continents actually have high rates of peanut allergy. And the same goes oh. for uh, South Asian. There, you know, there's no such thing as a wheat allergy in India, but there are lots of Indian patients with wheat allergy. And then the same goes for shellfish and Southeast Asia. So it's, it's, it's actually quite fascinating. Sorry, you're saying that Indians in their native country don't suffer from wheat allergies, but... Yeah, so, you know, like, I, and I mean people who are sort of ha have been living for generations in, in North America, and they seem to have a different profile of the immune system. And, you know, they seem to be almost mm -hmm. more prone to developing allergies that are very, very rare in their, you know, in their ancestral sort of homelands. So is this sort of... Is this indicating that then environmental factors are playing a huge part in allergy? Exactly, exactly. So what is it about our diet? What is it about our environmental exposures? Are we exposed to more pollution, for example? Are we eating more processed mm -hmm. foods that's making the gut bacteria unhappy and sort of leading, leading up to developing these allergies? And, you know, just by virtue of eating certain foods more commonly, you might identify a specific allergy in a specific ethnic population too. Like I'll, right. I'll give you that, but it, it's actually a, a very interesting phenomenon that we see all the time in different ethnic populations. Wow. And I don't know if you'd have the answer to this. Are, are allergies, food allergies becoming more prevalent? Are we seeing more and more people allergic to certain foods? It's, yeah, it, it is it is an increasing phenomenon. And one interesting thing is that adult onset food allergies are becoming more common. You know, classically, we're taught that food allergies come about in childhood, right? Right. Rarely did you ever diagnose an adult with food allergy. Not so much anymore. In fact, adult onset shellfish allergies are fairly common. And we can sort of get into why, why we think that's the case. Okay. Um, I'll bite. Yeah, Why but, is that? Uh, <laughs> so um, a lot of people have allergies to an environmental allergen called dust mites, right? Okay. So dust mites are microscopic. They, you know, get their water through the skin. So they like to live in our mattresses, our pillows, wherever, you know, they have access to a water, wherever it's dark and sort of humid. They have this protein. The protein is called tropomycin. 
That same protein is actually also in shellfish, so especially the crustacean variety of shellfish. So we think that, you know, in adults, this environmental allergy to dust mite evolves into a food allergy to crustacean shellfish because it's the same protein that you are reacting to. And people are often surprised by it because, you know, they've been eating shellfish their entire life, no problem. Right. All of a sudden, they'll have anaphylaxis to shellfish. Wow. And of course, anaphylaxis, which is the most serious, is that right? That's the most serious reaction that you can Not have necessarily. To? These are all oh. very serious, but anaphylaxis tends to be high profile. And again, I've got a list here of symptoms of anaphylaxis, skin hives, swelling to the face, lips, tongue, itching, warmth, redness, respiratory problems, stomach problems, cardiovascular problems. There's actually a huge list of symptoms here. Anaphylaxis can be tricky to diagnose because there's... Mm. There are things that can mimic it, and also it can start out subtle. So, mm. you know, if you do have a diagnosis of food allergy, it's really important to empower yourself with the knowledge of what anaphylaxis is. There's three different definitions. So one definition is that you know that you've had exposure to your allergen, and you have a drop in your blood pressure. Um, so basically the blood pressure drop can manifest as feeling dizzy or actually passing out that counts as anaphylaxis. So mm. don't necessarily have to have any skin or breathing problems. Another definition is you know you're exposed to your allergen and any two body parts are affected. So it can be skin and gut. So you can have, you know, hives and diarrhea, hives and vomiting. You could have, you know, a sensation of dizziness and breathing symptoms. So, you know, any two body systems are affected. Plus, you know that you've been exposed to your allergen. And then the third one is probably the one that has the most awareness is that you have skin plus. So you have hives plus any of breathing problems, cardiovascular problems that can manifest in dizziness or pressing out, gastrointestinal problems, etc. So a lot of different definitions. So great to be aware of it and great to give that mm. adrenaline fast if you know that you're having anaphylaxis. There's other kinds of adverse reactions. So anaphylaxis is one of the immune system reactions that we that we commonly hear about to food. There's all kinds of other reactions to food. One is called eosinophilic esophagitis, where you have infiltration of allergy cells in your gut and your esophagus so that, you know, the inflammation actually causes scarring and causes episodes of reflux and choking. So that's called eosinophilic esophagitis. There's also food protein-induced enterocolitis, which is F. Pies, not the not not a great pie. Um, so F pies is you eat the food and then one to two hours later you'll have vomiting to the point that you might need emergency department visit for wow. IV fluids. That happens too. So these are all different sorts of immune reactions to foods that are increasingly recognized. I mean, a lot of people might be sensitive to a certain food. They say a certain food makes me feel unwell and so forth. But is there a difference between a food sensitivity and a food allergy. Absolutely. So food allergies tend not to be subtle. You eat the food within seconds to minutes, you have a reaction. And that reaction is, again, not subtle. You break out into hives, you get swelling, you get breathing problems. Food allergies, you know, tend to be one of one of many different adverse reactions to food. So absolutely, there's a possibility that you eat a food. For example, I'll take gluten as an example. It's a it's a very mm -hmm. common one. If you if some people eat gluten containing products, they don't feel well, they feel kind of sluggish, they can get nausea, they can get vomiting, they can get diarrhea. 
That is not an allergy. So allergies are immediate and they tend to follow the, that, those definitions of anaphylaxis that we've previously talked about. Sensitivities or intolerances can be quality of life limiting, but typically not life-threatening. Over time, these intolerances can get worse, you know, as, as we age or as our sort of our gut flora undergoes changes, they can get worse. But very sort of different things. And oftentimes, you know, uh, patients will come in with an intolerance and we'll sort of have a discussion that, you know, if if I do a skin test, if I do a blood test, it's actually, it's likely not going to be positive because my test picks up the anaphylactic type allergies. Those food intolerance reactions require more work in diagnosing. So what they entail typically is complete avoidance of the food for at least four to six weeks, and then challenging yourself with the food back in your life and seeing whether the, the reaction is provoked again. Right. So Dr. Jamie, someone suffering a food insensitivity or intolerance, are they then, they go somewhere else. So they're treated in a different department than someone with a veritable food allergy? So yeah, that's right. So from the allergy side, we can sort we can sometimes ease a patient's mind and do the skin testing and sort of talk to them about the fact that this is not a life-threatening reaction. And then we will often suggest um, to have additional workup. For example, gluten sensitivity should be worked up and celiac disease should be ruled out because uh, celiac disease can have long-term consequences down the line. If a patient has multiple food sensitivities, you have to think, is there something going on with their gut? And that's when we send patients to a gastroenterologist to rule out a gastrointestinal disorder. Of course. And so how, if someone suspects that they're, they're experiencing these symptoms, how does a food allergy, how is it diagnosed by a physician? That's a great question. I think there's this sort of impression out there that, you know, you come to the allergy clinic and you get poked by a lot of different things. And, you know, that's that's part of the picture. So food allergy diagnosis requires... I would say three or four steps. The first and most important step is your history. So mm -hmm. anaphylactic allergies are an immediate phenomenon. So you're exposed and then, you know, five minutes to 30 minutes later, you have the symptoms. So that's a key clinical history characteristic of, you know, an anaphylactic type reaction to a food. If you have a food and then 48 hours later, you have a symptom, that's not really likely to be anaphylactic. So the clinical history is super important. Based on the clinical history, we then sort of direct our investigation. So this can include skin testing, whether with pre, you know, prepared extracts or fresh foods. Sometimes we add blood tests, and we now have pretty sophisticated blood tests that actually break down mm -hmm. foods by specific components. So you know, we can actually test the specific component of peanut, for example, that makes you more prone, that puts you at higher risk of maybe having anaphylaxis. So skin test, maybe blood test. And then the final step is called an oral challenge. And an oral challenge entails feeding a patient the food that is their suspected allergen and incrementally increasing doses up to about a serving size of the food. And this is usually done in a monitored setting where if there's anaphylaxis, then we can manage. So those are the sort of different steps in diagnosis. You know, if the history is quite clear cut, and the skin test can also sometimes be very clear cut, then we don't go and do an oral challenge all the time because, you know, we kind of know that there's almost 100% risk of anaphylaxis. But typically, it's a three-step process. And at each step, you determine what's this patient's risk of reacting again to this food if they eat it. Wow. So that process, I mean, it's, how long does that whole process take? 
It can take time and, you know, it's sort of dependent on what the patient's history is, right? So if, right. if somebody has never eaten a food before, you know, we tend to have a low suspicion that the patient is going to have a reaction. Their immune system just maybe has, you know, hasn't seen the food before. And that's true of babies. So babies, when they uh, first get introduced to a food, even if they have a reaction to the food, it tends to be mild and sort of restricted to the skin. Their immune systems are just not mature. Their immune systems have not had adequate exposure to a food to build up you know, the, the mm -hmm. immune system army uh, response to the food. So we, we usually have a more of an, uh, not a, a, you know, an aggressive stance, I guess, on introducing a food to the baby's gut as fast as we can. Right. So, and that, that I'll just, well, I was going to go somewhere else, but I'll skip ahead quickly. That, that sort of leads into, I guess, one of the myths surrounding food allergies that you should avoid certain foods for a baby, right? You, you know, you hear parents say, oh, we don't want to give them peanuts or peanut butter to avoid this. But in fact, that's that's false, correct? That's the opposite. So yeah, yeah. so there's been this huge paradigm shift that's happened in how mm. we introduce allergens to babies. And previously, I would say 2016 and, and previous, the thought used to be that, you know, we should avoid giving babies allergenic foods to reduce their risk of developing food allergies. But remember how I brought up the Israelis and peanut allergy? Somebody noticed that and did a, this ginormous study on babies who are actually at higher risk of allergies. So babies who have eczema, babies who have an allergy to another food, took those babies and actually divided them into two groups. One group got introduced to peanuts early, another group delayed like we used to, you know, prior to the study. So the study is called the LEAP trial, and it's this sort of practice changing study where the kids who got introduced to peanut early actually had significantly less rates of peanut allergy, and that effect could be followed through in time longitudinally. So even when they were five, six, seven years old, their risk of peanut allergy is still significantly lower. And that has been imitated with other foods, including eggs and milk. And now there's more studies kind of just corroborating that, that, you know, it's not just the high high allergy risk babies that this is true for. This is true generally that, you know, the earlier the gut sees the food and, mm. you know, if you are able to beat the, the the race between the gut and the skin seeing the food, you really reduce the risk of food allergies in any patient. Wow. And, and again, that so that's a radical change and that's occurred like basically in the last six years, you're saying. So six, seven years ago. Yeah, it's been it's been almost a decade. I, I say 2016, okay. but it's, it's almost been a decade. But as you right. know, knowledge translation can be quite slow. And, you know, the, the trickling effect has, I, I feel like, I think 2016 on, we really sort of shifted our, uh, our practice in primary care offices where we started telling patients, okay, when your child is developmentally ready to have food, introduce it. Don't wait. So here's another question then. It might be a sort of a myth. I mean, can what a woman eats during pregnancy, can a, a woman's diet during pregnancy, can that trigger an allergy in her baby? Oh, Ian, you hit a nerve. This is a, a hill that I might die on. <laughs> I find <laughs> that parents are frequently sort of blamed and shamed for a lot of things, uh, for, you know, a, a lot of things that happen to their babies. And 
There is absolutely no convincing evidence that anything that a mom does or eats during pregnancy has any effect on the child's likelihood of uh, having allergies. And, and this includes in lactation, right? Unless there's a very specific case where the child has, an, has a diagnosis called CMPA, cow's milk protein-induced proctocolitis, or it's called allergic proctocolitis now. So if that's the case, then maybe there needs to be some restrictions with the mom's diet. Even that mm -hmm. has pretty weak evidence. So nothing that you've done in pregnancy, nothing that you've done during breastfeeding has any impact on the baby's chance of developing allergy. It's really the baby wow. themselves getting the food particle in their gut rather than through their skin. Right. And is it true then, and infants can be tested, right, for mm. a food allergy? I, I guess I'm looking at a myth here that, no, 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 you can't, can't administer these tests to young infants, but is that, that's not the case. Oh, I really appreciate that you brought that up. Yes, we we sometimes hear that that you know there seems to be this impression that kids need to be a certain age in order to get tested. Not not so. In fact, like I said, we actually urgently prioritize the little ones so that we can prevent food allergies in them if, if there's a worry of a food allergy, or you know we can sort of make some adjustments to their diet if there's an issue with any other kinds of immune reactions to food. So allergists and immunologists are actually double certified to see both pediatric and adult populations. So anything from cradle to grave, we see. And again, then, so I guess another myth linked to all this might be that infants, babies are at high risk. I guess, you know, some parents, are, and it's nerve wracking when you're a new parent and you think, oh my God, something could happen. But in fact, it, that's not the case, right? That infants, well, I don't know what I'm saying now, are not at high, high risk of developing a food allergy, correct? When they're very, very young? Food allergy reaction, you mean. That's right. So right. all of the data that we have so far show that infants who have allergic reactions on first exposure to a food, that first exposure reaction, if it's going to be an allergic reaction, tends to be mild because they just mm -hmm. simply don't have the immune system maturity to mount a robust enough response. That being said, I am a parent myself. I completely understand what it feels like to have, mm -hmm. you know, concerns and worries about particular issues about your child. So if a parent is concerned, we, we sort of work through those concerns and try just try to in, uh, introduce the food to the best, you know, while, while maximizing everyone's comfort. So it's always a shared decision. And um, I tend to think like, you know, caregiver instincts are typically right. If a parent is worried, their spidey senses are tingling. I respect that. Right, right. So let's jump to treatment then. What are the, so a child who has been diagnosed with a food allergy, what, what are the treatment options? Treatment options have also undergone a pretty big paradigm shift. Previously, you know, the only option really was you have an anaphylactic allergy, you have to avoid the food for life, carry right. an EpiPen if you have an exposure to, and I say EpiPen, but I mean ep epinephrine auto injectors, sorry. Um, so, you know, you carry, you carry epinephrine and, you know, if you have a reaction, you treat the reaction. So that is the longstanding option for food allergies. The an, an, a sort of a newer option is something called oral immunotherapy with foods or desensitization to foods. We can, if we intervene early enough, we can actually introduce minuscule levels of food that the patient is allergic to back into their life and sort of keep the immune system desensitized to a specific quantity of that food protein their entire life so that if the patient is accidentally exposed to the food, 
you know, if they're exposed to the amount that they're already desensitized to, it's predicted to not cause a reaction. So that's called oral uh, oral immunotherapy um, or desensitization, and that exists for you know most most commonly peanut, but it exists for really every food. We just had to sort of intervene early in this situation because the older you are, and by older I mean actually past preschool age, the the more your immune system gets set in its ways, and the oral immunotherapy process is rife with more adverse side effects and such. Whereas if we intervene before age one, if we intervene before age six, the process goes really smoothly, and they actually work up to a significant significant quantity of the food that they're allergic to by actually increasing their dietary amount of it over a period of a few months to a year. So we do that at St. Joseph's all the time. Excellent. And what about stigma or social attitudes? I think, I mean, obviously I'm older and there for a long many years there was maybe this kind of, you know, it was often dismissed. I think people would roll their eyes and think, oh, can't eat peanut butter you know, but has have attitudes changed, do you think? I would like, to, like the naive part of me would like to think so, but unfortunately I, I don't. I do think there's quite a bit of, what's it called, medical gaslighting, I guess. Mm. There's a bit of gaslighting of individuals who have a diagnosis of allergy. And I think part of the reason why that is, is because... The term allergy is, you know, often used inappropriately, right? So anaphylaxis to a food is life-threatening, and that's certainly not the same kind of reaction as, you know, having an intolerance to a food, right? For example, if you have lactose intolerance, you know, if you have milk, you'll have stomach cramps, you'll have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Is that life-threatening? No. Milk allergy, on the other hand, much of the headlines that you read about anaphylactic deaths in the media are related to milk exposure. Mm -hmm. So milk anaphylaxis is quite serious, but, you know, the label of allergy, I think, has become a bit diluted. And you're right, there's some sometimes sort of a mocking of it. In schools, we often hear about kids being bullied and sort of, you know, isolated because of their allergies. And there's a lot of mainstream sort of dialogue about how, oh, why should we not, why should we treat this person, you know, differently? Why does my child have to refrain from taking peanut butter to the lunchroom right. just because That's someone right. else is allergic to it, right? Which which is, you know, a whole other issue, Ian. I'm, I'm actually not a proponent of allergen-free schools. I'm a proponent of hmm. teaching staff and teaching kids and families to manage allergies rather than, you know, right. making the environment even more sterile. So there's actually been systematic reviews of whether it's beneficial to keep allergens out of schools, and um, the evidence is not in favor of it. Yeah, you were saying about the difference between managing food intolerance, food allergies, rather than eliminating it in a, in a school setting. Can you Do you have any advice or tips as to how an agency, a school, an organization can do that in, in a setting? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think educating and empowering patients around allergy is one of the most important things that we can do. And every patient that we see in allergy clinic gets education on how to use an EpiPen. And actually, a lot of them leave the clinic with their own needleless training devices. And we often say, hey, teach everyone around you how to use this so that you mm. can take some of the drama out of it, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the I, I don't know why, but there's this image that, oh my gosh, Epi is the last resort. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's very dramatic. There's lots of sort of clips that I see of people just like doing these dramatic arcs into their legs or even chest with EpiPen. But, you know, 
One really important thing I can do today even is just to tell you, if you have anaphylaxis, the best thing that you can do is use an EpiPen, learn how to use an EpiPen. I can do it in one quick minute. Basically, if you're having anaphylaxis, you lie down. If you're not having lots of difficulty breathing, you lie down to get the blood to your heart and your brain. Then you put the EpiPen, you basically gently place it against your thigh, your outer thigh, around the midway point of your outer thigh, and you hold it in until it clicks. You hold it in for about one to three seconds and you're done. And that will take a lot of the uh, risk of having rebound anaphylaxis, having protracted anaphylaxis out of the episode. That simple bit of learning, I think, needs to happen at workplaces and schools. And, you know, I personally have offered it to my son's school. We, I just recently did the presentation to the little kiddies and the and the teachers. I've never been so nervous because fourth and sixth graders can be judgy. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a really high yield. It's a high return on an investment process to go through for every single school. Oh, that's fascinating. So as you said, there's always a lot of people may go online and they're, they're offered, a, they stumble upon a test and you said this, this is called a panel test. What does that mean? What? How does the test Yeah, uh, so uh, these food panel tests are ubiquitous. They're actually available at some, you know, outpatient laboratories. And, you know, they're widely advertised. They tend to be expensive. So these hmm. food tests actually pick up on an antibody called a tolerant antibody in, in patients. So you, you do this test, and I think it checks for, I think, two to 400 different foods. And typically the results come out as milk, egg, wheat being the top three things because, like I said, it picks up tolerant antibodies and most people consume a lot of milk, egg, wheat. So it picks up those antibodies. People end up avoiding those foods or avoiding other sort of random foods that come up on this test. And, you know, it's it's really not an appropriate way to diagnose food allergy. It it picks up on the wrong kind of immune immune component to diagnose a food allergy. And I just, I think it does patients a lot of disservice because, you know, they're sort of lulled into a sense of thinking, oh, well, this is it. I should, I should avoid milk, egg, and wheat. What often ends up happening is if you avoid milk, egg, and wheat, your diet becomes quite restricted. And, you know, you might, you know, start eating a lot of vegetables, <laughs> lean proteins, et cetera. Most people tend to lose weight on it. Most people tend to feel excellent. And, you know, they attribute it <laughs> to the test results. But really, it's it's them making healthier lifestyle choices. The test, you know, kind of right. grabs a lot of money out of their pockets. But it, it really is an inappropriate test. It should not be used. Our National Allergy and Immunology Society has put out statements on why. Most allergists mm. will tell you that, you know, it's actually dangerous because, it's not, it's not going to pick up the food that you're allergic to, right? It's, it's going to, number one, pick up wrong foods that you're not really adversely reacting to. And secondly, it's not going to pick up your anaphylactic allergies. So I really dislike that this test is so ubiquitously out there. Right. And sorry, the actual test itself, is it a, like I, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a, called a blood a, test? or It's a blood test. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I see. It is a blood test. Right. Yeah. And, and oh, wow. um, you know, when I when I see that a, a patient uh, bringing in a binder full of results from this blood test, I just, I wonder about how much money has left their pocket, you know? And I have to say, like, I don't blame the patient at all for trying sure. to advocate for themselves and try to figure out what is going on with their body. Mm -hmm. um, what I am kind of, you know, what I don't like is somebody taking advantage of that vulnerability and sort of exploiting that vulnerability. Well, that's... I no idea. That's a good warning for our listeners out there. 
I actually saw it on a show called Dragon's Den or Shards Tank, like, you know, one of those things. And it was actually oh, really? advertised and, you know, triggered. <laughs> oh, wow. Did they get funding on that show <laughs> for their idea? I could not watch that episode through. I could not, wow. but I bet you they did. Wow. <laughs> because, okay. you know, many of these scams tend to be packaged in a very attractive way. Okay. Well, we covered a lot of topics and we're, I think, sort of run out of time here. So fascinating stuff. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did too. Dr. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Doc Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. Thank you.